Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 397. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 397. Our first sponsor spotlight and thanks goes to ASCFG, the Association of Specialty Cut Flower Growers. Formed in 1988, ASCFG was created to educate, unite, and support commercial cut flower growers. Its mission is to help growers produce high-quality floral material and to foster and promote the local availability of that product. Learn more at ASCFG.org. Our theme for 2019, 50 States of Slow Flowers, continues today with Amy Beausur of Indiana-based Molly and Myrtle. So listen for that conversation at the close of this episode. But first, I'm delighted to introduce you to my featured guest today, Jennifer Jewell, creator and host of Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. Cultivating Place plays a significant role in the audio space, not just on North State Public Radio in Chico, California, the show's home base, but everywhere through the power of podcasting and the radio. I know many of our Slow Flowers podcast listeners have already discovered Jennifer and this wonderful one-hour weekly program. In fact, Jennifer and I are frequently drawn to the same guests and topics. Cultivating Place is an incredible platform for dialogue with people for whom nature and gardening is a central, essential act. Jennifer is passionate about the conversations that often include simple questions such as, what is your garden practice? Here's more about Cultivating Place. The program's premise is that gardens are more than collections of plants. Gardens and gardeners are intersectional spaces and agents for positive change in our world. Together, we center gardens and gardeners as paradigm shifters, improving our relationships to and impacts on the more-than-human natural environment, on the larger cultures, and on our communal and individual health and well-being. Through thoughtful conversations with growers, gardeners, naturalists, scientists, artists, and thinkers, Cultivating Place illustrates the many ways in which gardens and gardening are integral to our natural and cultural literacy, on par with art, science, literature, music, religion, and more. Gardens encourage a direct relationship with the dynamic processes of the plants, animals, soils, seasons, and climactic factors that come to bear on a garden, providing a unique and uniquely beautiful bridge connecting us to our larger environments. 
culturally, and botanically. With 38% of U.S. households engaging in gardening, we are many, and especially together, we make a difference in this world. These conversations celebrate how all these interconnections support the places we cultivate, nourish our bodies, and feed our spirits. Here's more about Jennifer Jewell, host of the national award-winning weekly public radio program and podcast, Cultivating Place, Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. Jennifer Jewell is a gardener, garden writer, and gardening educator and advocate, particularly interested in the intersections between gardens, the native plant environments around them, and human culture. She is the daughter of garden and floral designing mother and a wildlife biologist father. Jennifer has been writing about gardening professionally since 1998, and her work has appeared in Gardens Illustrated, House and Garden, Natural Home, Old House Journal, Colorado Homes and Lifestyles, and Pacific Horticulture. She worked as native plant garden curator for Gateway Science Museum on the campus of California State University, Chico, and she lives and gardens in Butte County, California. Jennifer's first book is forthcoming from Timber Press in 2020 with the working title, The Earth on Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Living and Working with Plants. She examines how women are responding to the challenges of our world by cultivating a more connected interdependence with plants. The project documents how, in recent years, the plant world is improved as a result of being more representative, not only allowing for more women to excel, but also nurturing a much greater diversity of women. Plant work is also a far more viable, creative, and innovative career path for women than ever before. Jennifer's profiles demonstrate how human engagement with plants can lead us to greater social and environmental responsibility. I'm so honored that she asked me to be part of this project as one of the women profiled. And in the coming months, I'll have more details on her book to share with you. I'm so pleased to share my conversation with Jennifer today. Be sure to visit DebraPrinzing.com to find the show notes for today's episode 397 and check out links to more details on Cultivating Place, as well as a link to my July 2016 appearance as a guest on the show. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I am so excited today to introduce you to my friend, Jennifer Jewell. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for joining me, and you have such a sexy radio voice. I love it. <laughs> I am, I'm really excited to be here. So oh. I, I, I don't think it's very sexy, but I am really excited to be here. Wonderful. Uh, as some of you may recognize Jennifer's name and voice, she is the creator and host of Cultivating Place, which is available both uh, as a podcast and also, I think, through public radio. So um, I could be describing that wrong, Jennifer, but uh, give us a little snapshot of Cultivating Place and, and uh, introduce. let's introduce you to people who haven't found you yet. And I know some of our listeners have found you. Great. Well, thank you so much. And um, yeah, Cultivating Place is a podcast. It is a also, as you uh, suggested a public radio program, and it airs in Northern California on North State Public Radio and is available on PRX, Public Radio Exchange, around the country for stations to pick up either the whole series or individual episodes, as that makes sense to them. And we're going into, we're somewhere in the middle of our fourth year of being in production, and it is 
The subtitle of the program is Conversations on Natural History and the Human Impulse to Garden. And mm. it is very much not a how-to garden program. Um, it is much more like a slow flowers kinds of conversation in that it is trying to elevate or reframe how we talk about gardening and how we think about gardening and to get to kind of the philosophical why, because I feel as though, especially when it started four years ago, there was just a real lack of that level of conversation about what we do. And it had been really reduced, whether that has to do with cultural norms or the prevalence of marketing gardening as a lifestyle destination or object. <laughs> right, a product. Right? Yeah, and um, and I really, at the age of 50, thought, I don't, I don't like this thing that I do that is almost at the level of religion for me mm -hmm. to be reduced to a commodity. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I could help uh, you know, even in just small ways to remove the conversation from that other uh, arena and pull it into one that was a lot more meaningful and allow gardeners or try to encourage gardeners to see what they do as really meaningful and really powerful and a contribution to our society on the level of art and science and literature. I love it. And I couldn't agree with you more. Everything you're saying resonates with me having been a long time, quote unquote, garden writer. What does yeah. that actually mean? <laughs> and, you know, in today's day and age, it is it, it's changed in the media world because every daily newspaper in the country used to have a garden writer or editor and they would do more of the how to y kind of content, if that's a word. Like I, I like to say, I'm so delighted I never have to ever again write the perennial spring story or summer story on how to get the black spot off of your tomato leaves. Yeah. That's sort of distilled down to just the mindset of, of media and how gardening should be right. uh, addressed as a content topic. Right. Um, you're more, you're saying, no, this is a soulful, essential act. And yeah. I'm going to talk to people about that. Yeah. And, and I want to uh, not only talk to people about that, but hear all the kinds of stories that mm -hmm. illustrate that. Because I think the other element that became more and more clear to me was that it was also not only commodified, but it was being portrayed as this sort of serene retreat for wealthy white people. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that in no way did that reflect my experience with what it meant to garden or be a gardener. And that, you know, when you look at the history of the world, Deborah, every culture has engaged in gardening for all the reasons we do now, for beauty, for food, for utility, for sanity, for environment. And these are uh, cross-cultural and these are, they, they, it, just like any other form of art, transcends all boundaries you might want to put in its place. It transcends age and gender and finances and color of your skin and religious belief. 
it uh, it's something we all do. It's a very deeply human impulse. I love it. So you're like basically recasting the conversation through these weekly episodes uh, on your show where you have really fascinating guests who do represent what you just described. You're not just um, looking for the um, what has unfortunately been the media definition of who is a gardener. Yeah. Um, and that tell me about some of the, the topics and themes um, that maybe you've covered in the last uh, year or so with intent. I mean, I feel like you're very uh, thoughtful about who you invite on the show and where what subjects you I guess you include as relevant, you know, to anyone who who loves to garden because obviously you're br- much broader than that. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, this is one of the great joys of working with a small, underfunded public radio <laughs> station. God love them. They. Uh, I'm a, they I'm have- a small public. No, I'm a small private underfunded radio station. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I get it. Exactly. There, there is no money in this work. So anyone who thinks it's glamorous, uh, please know that it's you know 18 hours a day for about four cents an hour. And I'm still so, wearing my pajamas. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, we, we, there are uh, you know pros and cons to this choice in life. The, but they, I, I started the program. 11 years ago as a four minute piece that was much more locally based called in a North state garden. And four years ago, the station invited me to expand the program and take it to the national platform. And I, they, I know, which was, which was great. And it was an, a beautiful vote of confidence in what I was doing and my capability for doing it. And the, they had never, ever, told me who I could talk to, what I needed to talk about. They never asked me to, you know, align my program or its content with any one of their underwriters. Um, And so I have fabulous liberty and um, free reign with what I talk about. And so when I decided to expand it, it was really important to me. The, the whole reason that I started the the first version of the program was because, like you, I had worked for national glossy magazines as a garden writer, ha- having at some point realized that I wanted to marry my love of horticulture and gardening and nature with my love of writing and communication. Mm-hmm. And I so I, I went what seemed like the obvious route. I started pitching stories to glossy magazines. And after working for, you know, some big names, House and Garden, Gardens Illustrated, et cetera, et cetera, I, I was very swiftly disillusioned with what I was doing, how it was edited, what it looked like, and the kind of reductive nature of mm. that work. Mm-hmm. And I... And, and that was even working with some really wonderful editors, for instance, at House and Garden under Stephen Orr and Dominique Browning, who had a very expansive vision of what gardening was, but they still had to adhere to the constraints of advertisers, page length, the, all of those things. Yep. So so when I came to the radio station at first, I said, you know, my, the most important thing here is this is not me telling you the 10 best tomatoes for the summer. And it's not me telling you, uh, the listener, um, what is beautiful. It is me asking you those questions. What, what do you do? Why do you do this? What does it bring out in you or the world? So when I went to the, the larger 
format of an hour long um, and on the national platform, I was really intentional about whose whose voice do I want to hear and whose whose ethic and ethos do I want to put out into the world and. I, I would say there are some very broad themes uh, to the, the program, and one is very obviously in the subtitle of the program that conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden, and that marriage between our human act of taking plants and working with them, which I would then put as sort of agriculture or horticulture or floriculture, and how that interfaces with the natural environment, that's a very important theme to me because mm-hmm. um, it's, I think it's just inherent in every garden, whether it's at a conscious or a, a, an unconscious level. But I also think that it's uh, in this day and age of just how we as humans are impacting our natural environment. And that can be on a very small local level, you know, I have a field that I can see right down my road, uh, Deborah, that is under consideration for a large development, and it is the home of several endangered species. Mm-hmm. And so this is, you know, this is true on very local specific levels right. like that. And, and then it's true when you look at climate change, you know, um, and all of the disturbance that is creating for all of us across the globe. So Other themes that have been really important to me are the different ways that different cultures engage in gardening. And I have uh, worked very hard to try and find voices and histories and traditions that I wasn't seeing in other places, but that had crossed my radar and had elicited a real curiosity and interest in me. So I, I... one example is early in the first year of the program I interviewed, uh, you were one of my earliest yes. uh, guests because I, yeah, it was because that conversation that you had started about the importance of flowers and floriculture from the florists who design the people who supply flowers to the people who grow flowers. This was such a revolution in our, in our horticultural world. And whether or not you're a gardener or a, a florist or a flower farmer, you probably were impacted or touched by the changes you and your conversation brought to the table, Deborah. Mm. And so this was really important to me to try and get out to other people who were outside of this circle. And, you know, so I, I always think about me as a mom in my car with my kids driving to you know, soccer practice or driving to school or home from school. So that being on public radio meant that they heard these words and these mm-hmm. voices mm-hmm. without choice mm-hmm. to, to some extent. They just, they were trusting that public radio was going to bring them this kind of interesting content. And that if five children in a year heard someone talking about flowers or gardening or plants at this level, it planted a seed that was important to me. I love that. So, yeah, yeah. And I, so I, I was the mom with the kids in the car with NPR, right? too. And now my kids are in their 20s, are reading the New York Times online and listening to public <laughs> radio. So uh, that subversive act does pay off. It, it does. Even if yeah. it's unintentional. Yeah, exactly. And um, so I loved that idea of exposure. So you were one of my early uh, episodes as 
was a wonderful woman named Dr. Elizabeth Hoover, who is a professor at Brown University, and she is of Native American heritage from northern New York. And I ran across her name in regards to heirloom seed and Mm. heirloom seed recovery in Native American uh, communities. And when I started looking into everything she was doing, my mind was just blown away. So one of the things that she was working on at that time, and this was four years ago, was a project which should be a book in the next couple of years called um, Good... Okay, wait, I'm going to have to look this up, but it's Garden Warriors and Good Seed, something Mm, like mm. this. And she was going around the country documenting every Native American growing plant food seed initiative that she could find across the country. So she got in a car one summer and she made, I think, something like 1,400 visits to locations around the country and different tribal initiatives in how they were protecting their seed sovereignty, their food sovereignty, their land health and security, whether that had to do with soil contamination up on the border in New York or um, water contamination. And there was this moment where I was like, that is, that is world and culture changing. That is found work of meaning and it's gardening. It is, it is gardening. And it just, you know, and, and when I come across things like that, another one of my more recent interviews was with Leah Penniman, who is, yeah, the, the author of Soul, uh, the, the co-founder with her husband and children of Soul Fire Farm and the author of Farming While Black. And this conversation is just so powerful. And but it it goes to, you know, all levels, whether I'm talking about someone far, far away in Ireland or, you know, Australia to um, someone right next door who's gardening after the campfire here in Northern California uh, you get to this level of meaning and connectivity in almost every conversation. Jennifer, that is so powerful. It's almost like when I first found out about you through our mutual friend, Lorene Edwards Forkner, um, I know we've all had ties to Pacific Horticulture Foundation. Um, I guess when I first heard about you, I thought you were this sweet little regional garden show in Northern California and that you only covered Chico-centric topics and maybe a few things on the West Coast. And I was so wrong. I mean, your vision is, it's so global and universal. Like you, you are, anyone can be your guest anywhere in the world. It's not a regional show at all. And that's the power of how you have chosen to use cultivating place to have conversations that to shine light on people and have conversations about topics that you don't see being covered anywhere else in quote unquote garden media. Right. I mean, you're, you're kind of over here waving your arms around and saying, this is important. People listen to this. And I just love the way you, you identify those topics and those people that we do need to know about and want to support. Yeah. Well, you're very nice to say that. The um, uh, You made me laugh when you said anyone could be your guest, because I think you are not dissimilar to me, because literally anybody could. I, I could find the Garden Connection pretty much any in any person, because 
you know, when it all comes back to it, we all do rely on a gardener somewhere, right? Yeah, it's so yeah. interesting. I remember when um, Amy Stewart and I had this conversation back when um, uh, we thought we were just moaning about how uh, marginalized uh, the the profession of garden writing was, and her point was, look, there are there are literary compilations of sports writing, of food writing, of um, uh, I guess the other one might be science writing. And why are there not literary compil compilations of the best garden writing? And we were just wondering why that never ha got accepted in kind of the mainstream publishing world. Um, but we, as the people who are doing that writing need to change our subject matter so it is perceived as uh, worthy of the best writing and the best story storytelling um, you know available and not just the the Q and a with you know the local I don't know nursery owner which is uh, could be really fabulous but it's just we weren't allowed to actually dig deeper than the surface topics well and I would say that like anything that hobbles us right? so much of it has to do with us having the awareness and taking the initiative to just remove those hobbles. Because I will tell you, there are, I still do it sometimes. People will say, what do you do? I'm just a garden writer. I have a <laughs> yeah. little program. And, or, you know, what are, what are you doing today? Well, you know, don't tell anybody, but I'm going to try and sneak out to the garden and get a couple hours in. Um, and, but, uh, you know, I'll have dinner ready when it's supposed to be ready. And there's this like feeling as though, this activity and this even thinking and writing and talking about this activity is somehow not as important as other things. And, and I would say that my couple of hours in the garden every day, every week, it is absolutely as necessary to my intellectual and spiritual health, my emotional health, as going to church might be for someone else, as taking a run might be for someone else, as meditating is for someone else, that this is a form of very proactive, you know, self-care that radiates out into the world mm. and makes an enormous difference. Mm -hmm. I notice also you don't use the term work. I'm not working in the garden. You're, you're, you've intentionally eliminated that from your vocabulary, and I, I want to be more like that. I, <laughs> uh, I, I wonder if that, that puts it into the chore category or like the tedious category where um, right. you're, you're so opposite that saying, well, it's your human impulse to garden, essentially, right? You're, you're living yeah. that every day. Although, of course, using the term work is a great cover. You'd be like, oh, I got to go out in the garden and work, girls. I'll see you later. Find, yeah. find dinner. And it's hard, but I'll do it. Mom, um, mommy has to do this. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Wow. The, um, yeah, I try and use the term, especially when I'm speaking to my guests, uh, you know, tell me about your garden practice. Mm. I, I, because mm. I like as, we, as we know, it's, it's not a thing that has a static end point. You're like, good, it's done. Everybody step away. Like that, that isn't it. It's a, it's a relationship. Yeah. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about your path and how you got to this because uh, your bio is so fascinating. And first of all, you um, studied at an Ivy League college. You were, you know, kind of did the academic route. What, what had you started out thinking you, your life was going to be as a college graduate? 
Well, as I'm sure you know, life is a very direct and single focused path. And so <laughs> it's good to be able to say I started here and I got there. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It is full circle. Um, uh-huh, it, it is a twisty and exciting ride. The I I grew up in a family with a mother who did not go to college and a father who graduated from Harvard and then went on to get his PhD in wildlife biology. So mm-hmm. I had kind of a nice balance between academia as an esteemed, you know, accomplishment and uh, a, a little bit more pragmatic approach to the world, both of which were uh, very well respected in my household. Mm-hmm. So I I think I always knew I wanted to be a writer. And I'm pretty sure from very early on, I wanted to be a gardener. I, not even wanted. We don't have a choice in these things. Right. I knew I was a gardener. And my mother knew I was a gardener. And I have two sisters both of whom um, love their gardens and are gardeners. But one of the greatest compliments I ever received from my mother, who died 20 years ago, was when she said to a friend at a nursery, this is Jennifer, she's the real gardener. (laughs) And I thought, oh my, I have reached like all that I wanted to reach in this world. My, My mother was a fabulous gardener and a floral designer and... Uh, garden designer where we lived in Colorado. And we lived at about 8,000 feet. And I didn't really understand what that meant in the way of how how challenging that was to garden in successfully. Right, absolutely. Like she Until had, I was she older. Had, yeah, she had way more uh, working against her than someone yeah. at sea level. Wow. Yeah. And she had a, a great knack with native plants. And she was a wonderful floral designer. And I think one of the reasons... Uh, one of the many reasons that I love your program and your work is that one day, maybe, I will have the the guts to be a floral designer on a very small level and work only with native plants. Like I have this little dream of like a little native plant cutting garden here in Northern California where I do, you know, three bouquets a year, call myself a floral designer. But you know what, Jennifer, I think that is totally achievable. And we have members in Slow Flowers who are doing that in rather unexpected places like Florida and uh, upstate New York and Massachusetts and California. So uh, it's not a, it's not in the mainstream of floristry, but it, what it it could be, especially cultivative, cultivated native plants that are not, you know, out, you know, illegally obtained. So, right. Exactly. That's part of it. So, so my, yeah, so my mom was a great inspiration mm -hmm. and, um, but I went off to, to boarding school and then off to college and, uh, just so that nobody gets a, a wrong impression. I started at Barnard college in New York city. And after 18 months thought to myself, what am I doing here? And why am I spending all this money? Mm. when I don't know. So I dropped out and uh, ran home to my parents crying, more or less. And they said, welcome home, sweetie. We didn't want you in New York City anyway. <laughs> and, um, and then, randomly enough, Deborah, I joined the circus for five years and traveled around the country with a small performing arts circus. Oh, my God. And I love this. <laughs> I know. And Lorene always laughs when I tell this part of the story. And it was a fantastic education in project management and working with very different kinds of people. And I was the general manager 
uh, at the you know tender age of 19 or something. Uh, it was a, a circus founded by my maternal uncle who was in the sort of producing and circus arts world. And then <laughs> I crazy. realized I, um, I realized that that probably wasn't my real calling in life. And so I ran away from the circus to join a home. That was the joke they made. Um, <laughs> She's and, finally growing up. <laughs> right, exactly. And, um, and my parents were very supportive. They were involved in this nonprofit circus as well. So they, they were very supportive. And I, uh, then returned to school. I married and uh, my now former husband was in medical school and we sort of did what you would think you do. You go to medical school, you go to residency, you go to fellowship and everywhere we went, I followed and uh, did what I liked to do. So at first I thought I wanted to be a teacher. No way, I have a big truck. That's okay. That's the okay. Am our ambient noise. Exactly. So I, I, I thought I wanted to be an educator, which clearly I did, but not necessarily in the classroom setting. Mm -hmm. So I got my teaching certification. And then I, after graduating from Harvard, and I, so I went and got my teaching certification. Mm -hmm. I, uh, my husband and I were then, we relocated to Seattle to be, um, for his residency, which was going to be five years, which was five years long. And so it was in Seattle that I, uh, at the age of about 25, I want to say, I had my first little house and garden. Mm. And I got a job at Microsoft working as an editor and writer on their Encarta Encyclopedia. And that combination of my first home garden in a fabulous place to garden, yep. let's just say, yep. uh, with the divine independent nursery known as Fremont Gardens just down the street from me. <laughs> and that was uh, Lorene uh, Edwards Borkner's little nursery at the oh, time. Oh, I know. And I spent yeah. many hours there. I can't believe we never met there because... I'm sure we probably <laughs> ran into each other. What um, a sweet little neighborhood nursery. Oh my gosh. Oh, and it just lit me up. So that combination of writing and editing and working obsessively in my home garden um, and learning plants and learning my way and... Um, that really was the the moment where it all started to come together. And from there, we uh, I started writing about gardens. We went to England for my ex-husband's fellowship. We had our first daughter in Seattle and our second daughter in England. And being in England without working papers and uh, one small child and one very big belly, I that's when I started pitching stories to national publications. Mm, mm -hmm. And then we eventually returned from England to Colorado for my husband to start his practice. And during those early years with my kids, the freelance writing was a great, you know, part-time, keep my, my hand in the game. Um, and, and so I did that for those five years. And then we were relocated for his work to Northern California. And that's when I thought, now is the time to make the switch. Now is the time to try something different with this thing I love. And that's when I approached my, my public wow. radio station. Literally the second month we were living here, I went in and said, you need a garden program. I'm the person to bring it to you. And it's going to be like this. And I'm happy to volunteer. 
and they said, great. Wow. Oh, yeah. But four minutes per segment. I mean, that is concentrated. It's you must be. It was was brutal. Like a little idea. And that's it. Uh Right. Yes. So I did a lot more writing on um, my website Mm. to in Mm -hmm. order to sort of flesh out those uh, those four minute pieces. But it is amazing what essential information you can get off. You know, you can get into four minutes. It it's what is it they say that um, a novelist is a failed short story writer and a, <laughs> a short story writer is a failed poet because it's the little form that is the hardest. Oh to my get gosh, right. it is so true. And now yeah. everyone consumes bite-sized yeah. tweets. So basically, you were ahead of you were ahead of the trend in in terms of con- <laughs> sharing communication. Wow. But then I got lazy and moved to an hour. So. Oh my goodness! Yes. Well, I understand that, and um, I'm always I'm I'm always the one trying to fight for more pages in Florist Review because I have more to say, you know, and that, right. <laughs> and they would like to have bigger photos and smaller articles. So it's right. just the way of the world. But but the power of the spoken word and the power of of storytelling in a podcast format is exploding and cultivating place has provided you this platform now with this expanded show to really um explore what you're excited about and share it with others and yeah. sh- I, it's 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 I, I didn't even realize how global you were until i started poking around to see what articles had been written about the podcast it's congratulations yeah. and it's exciting it is exciting and it is amazing. I think you found the same thing with your slow flowers work is it really resonated with you. So you did it and it really was received with a hunger by the people who were wanting this, but didn't even maybe know it was missing. So that resonance with gardeners around the world is, you know, the comments I get from gardeners everywhere from, you know, two towns over to, Australia and Japan mm, and mm-hmm. uh, is is really meaningful. So Jennifer, in uh, the public radio world, they're really they, I, I can't think of any kind of other program that's available uh, to listeners. And I'm sure there might be some regional ones, but I remember Ketzel Levine used to do segments right. with Scott Simon, but I don't think that ever turned into a show per se. She was just a, a guest on well, I think Weekend she had edition. her own show for a while, for a couple of years, okay. called Talking Plants. Oh, that's and, right. 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 And it was great. But then I want to say seven, eight years ago, maybe 10 years ago, maybe in the, the economic downturn, it was cut. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you're kind of muscling your way back in, but in this um, entirely subversive way, because you're just going to keep talking about these more... I guess you're broadening the definition of gardening and, in fact, the natural history discussion and the environmental discussion and the sort of social, cultural, uh, you know, embrace of nature. You're bringing more people under the tent, I guess, and and into that tent. And that I think that's maybe why it's filling a a void in that sort of public radio you know, content world. I hate to use that word, but um, it, it's yeah. exciting. It's exciting. When I and that just happened last year when PRX picked you up, right? Yeah, and and God, I hope so. That that yeah. is my intention is uh, to 
because here's here's what I think. I think that the more people we can bring into this conversation and under this tent, the more we can align some of their work and goals and thoughts, and therefore the more impact we have. So um, I think a great example of that is the most recent census indicates that about 38% of all households in the U.S. engage in gardening in some form or another. Now, you know, that could be someone who puts in four plants every summer to get tomatoes and basil and zucchini. Right. So if 38% of, out of all households represents an enormous number of people in this work, if some large percentage of them determined because of greater awareness that it was a great idea to stop using toxic chemicals in mm -hmm. their gardens. Mm -hmm. We all of a sudden have an, a big shift in behavior, in impact. If some portion of that 38% decided to remove part of their lawn and put in flowering native perennials or food crops, that engage their neighborhood or engage local insect life or, you know, whatever it might be, added greater beauty than a lawn and its high maintenance and high inputs and very big carbon footprint um, represent, then that group of people has just made a pretty big impact. Um, wow. Just, you know, just the way, the way you did with the fact that you know, most people love flowers. Most people buy flowers several times a year, if not um, every single month, every single week. And so that if you change their behavior in even a small way, that compounded effect is enormous. Wow. I hadn't thought about that just sheer numbers, but to quote like census statistics and, and extrapolate out like what kind of, you know, Voting impact, you know, voting block right. that is right. It's, yeah. it's exciting, it and is. and it's not like you're on a, you know, soapbox campaign in an overt way. You're you're introducing ideas and practices um, through the real stories of other gardeners, and so hopefully that will, I don't know, indirectly fuel people's interest in changing their own practices. Yeah. That's my hope. Yeah. I think, um, you know, another great example of this is that I, I'm, I am on a soapbox and I'm not on a soapbox because I am, I am very happy to learn and expand my own understanding myself. But I just finished a five part series on habitat as our, our gardens as habitat. For right. Yeah. Us for wildlife. That is, as we hear every day, right? Like we're losing insect diversity in this world at an alarming rate. And I'm, I'm a little tired, to be honest, of the mainstream speaking to us as though all we can understand are, you know, monarchs are in decline, plant more milkweed or, you know, we need honeybees to provide us with food. And I, I, those are, those are important things to understand, but it's also important to understand that it's a much bigger conversation and we are smart enough to grasp the complexity of just how big all of those conversations are. It's not just about pollinators and us wanting to make sure we, uh, 
protect our food crops. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is us doing the right thing by the other living organisms we share this planet with. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, this five part series has really like just given people who want more has given them more information on what we're talking about, that it's not just this, you know, it's not a soundbite and it's not a two second either, you know, beautiful picture and one action. It's a way of thinking and then responding. So this uh, Healthy Habitats mini-series is is continuing through the m- month of April, right? It goes through the end of this month, yes. Oh, okay. So this week, which is the end of April. So we are this, let me see, yesterday uh, I talked to the Hummingbird Not Monitoring Network, uh, which uh, tracks the ecology and health of hummingbird populations from Mexico up into Canada, and then Last week, I spoke with a fantastic gardener, uh, horticulturalist at the Shed Aquarium on the lakes, Mm. uh, on the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago, Mm -hmm. and their habitat work there. They're right along the Mississippi Flyway, and they have an enormous uh, migratory bird garden. But because they're an aquarium, this is like a really big full circle conversation for them because their whole point is to protect water and aquatic life. And so their migratory bird garden on the shores of Lake Michigan ensure that they are not putting toxic material and runoff into the lake and thereby polluting and endangering the fish. So there's this like great interconnectivity. Yeah. And I shouldn't even worry about when this when this series uh, originally aired because through the beauty of uh, your podcast, yeah. people can just go back and listen to the whole series, and I'll put a right. link. I'll put a link to that in our show notes. It's it's. A, I mean, obviously, I would encourage everyone to subscribe to Cultivating Place, but you can also peruse the archives of past yeah. episodes, right? Yep. yep, that's exciting. Well, I think it's uh, it's also uh, terrific to. Um, yeah, you you were not on a soapbox in a way that we're like preaching to you know a a. a I don't know, acolytes who just listen to whatever thing we say. We're, we're questioning and probing and being challenged just through conversation that hopefully stimulates others to ask those questions in their own, in their own community. So, yeah. I, you know, that's the best thing you can be doing is, is pivoting uh, people's yeah. attention. So that's exciting. What else do you have coming up and on tap for, uh, <laughs> I mean, I know the grind of a weekly show, so I... <laughs> I am actually like very blessedly uh, planned out a little ways right now, which is not always the case, as you know. Um, But I have some great things coming up. So the the sort of bonus sixth episode in the Habitat series, uh, which I put on because I couldn't help myself, was a great conversation with Mary Reynolds, who is the Irish garden designer, and she was the focus of that movie, Dare to be Wild. Oh. I, I don't know if you got to see it. But I haven't it, seen it, but I am going to the Chelsea Flowers show in May, so I promised my friend to watch it before yeah. I leave. So, oh my yeah. gosh, so when is that's airing soon? They, uh, yes, that airs, um, gosh, I get my dates all confused. That's all right, Deborah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll I, find it. <laughs> right, it's it's I, it's I actually the last week of April. I okay. think it's the 20th. 25th or 6th or the 25th. How exciting. I'm so excited to hear that. Congratulations. Thank you. And then in honor of May Day, I am speaking with um, 
Georgina Reed of The Plant Hunter, mm. which is out of Australia. And she has a fabulous new book called The Plant Hunter, Truth, Beauty, Chaos, and Plants. And she is a, a writer and has an online magazine out of Australia called The Plant Hunter. But it is, again, a very, very broad and expansive conversation and um dialogue with the gardeners there as well as with other places in the world and the mm-hmm. uh she talks she focuses quite a bit on australia new zealand uh some english and um but really trying to like get a voice for her country and its complex history not just be a you know a regurgitation of english history right. and right. i think that is that is a fantastic uh thread that we're seeing around the world are areas that have been colonized like the US mm-hmm. trying to re uh, reframe and reintroduce the native voices that were you know abused disenfranchised silenced and um, you know kind of give verbal and visual reparations to these voices so uh, so she is in honor of May Day, and then in honor of Mother's Day, I'm speaking to Louisa Roebuck, who I'm, I think you've interviewed before for yes. her book, Foraged Flora, because I thought that was a great kind of gift to offer to families and mothers of, you don't have to go to the store and buy you know, the FDD Mother's Day bouquet or the grocery store. You can give your mother a book or just the time of a walk outside in which you collect beautiful things and then make a wonderful arrangement together. Oh, I'm so excited about that. Well, I'll be sure to share that with especially people coming to the Slow Flower Summit uh, in July because Louisa right. is one of our one of our main speakers. And um, I love I love how she has redefined what foraging means with sort of yeah. a, the term gleaning. I think I have you interviewed her yet? Uh, so she, I, I am interviewing her in the middle of next week, and oh. then she'll air. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk about that. Yeah, and have the, fun. Um, oh, and I so wish I was going to be at the summit, but I have a family reunion right at that time, and it's sort of breaking my heart. That's okay. I was so delighted that you came in, in on our for, for our first summit in Seattle, and I know we'll get you to future ones. I, I wish we lived closer so we could go on nature walks together and go plant shopping together or whatever it is that, uh, you know, it, we consider uh, our calling and not just uh, frivolous, you know, goofing around so i don't know i would like to have a martini in your backyard uh with your little greenhouse behind us and the sun setting that that would be my dream okay okay. after the plant shopping right (laughs) okay that sounds great um well i i know you've got a lot on your plate uh with your other writing projects is there anything else you want to share with us about that um with i know cultivating places your your ongoing project but um yeah, I have a couple. Um, well, I have a, a my I turned in my first book manuscript earlier this year, and it should be out on shelves in early 2020, available for pre-order. I hope before Christmas oh, of this year. Oh, I will help you promote that because it's going to be an amazing project. That I is think good. I think it will be. Um, and I can I I I don't think I'm not allowed to say these things, but it is because uh, I have talked about them on social media to some extent. Uh, but the the book was uh, an invitation that came to me from Timber Press to write a book about women around the world making some 
um, real innovation changes to expanding of the horticultural world. And of course, you were one of the women I chose. Oh, thank you. And, um, and there are 75 women that I profile across the globe, mostly, you know, sort of Western English speaking or mm-hmm. closely related. So I, I don't go deep into areas that I'm not as familiar with. But mm-hmm. it was a it was a profoundly humbling and uplifting experience in the last 18 months to have worked on this book and interview women who are really making changes to the world through their love of plants and they're sharing that forward with other people. And I can't wait for the book to come out and um, to just, yeah, sing, sing the praises of these women that I was lucky enough to, to interview and write about. I think that's going to be an amazing experience just to hold that in your hands after yeah. all, <laughs> all the time that you put. And I understand that um, during the work process of developing uh, or writing the book, um, you know, your personal life was greatly disrupted by the campfire in Northern California. And um, while you're, you, was your, res- where you live and your, your community threatened or was it just really close by or like, how did that, uh, how did that uh, take its toll on right. uh, your, your community? It, it's been very hard and it will be a long recovery. I was, uh, so the, the fire started east and south of where I live and it swiftly overwhelmed the town just to the east of us, mm. Paradise. And mm. um, it it came in and around the town of Chico. My neighborhood was uh, evacuated. Um my my partner, a wonderful man named John Whittlesey, who's a, a plantsman and a salvia expert, and he he's written a book on salvias, mm. and who is just a great a great influence and partner in all that I do. His property was burned. His house uh, did not burn, but his property burned, mm. and um, he and his family were evacuated to my house, and then. My house was, my whole neighborhood was evacuated, but he, uh, we did not evacuate because his, his 99.5 year old mother who was in sort of advanced hospice care, uh, we didn't want to move her again. Oh and goodness. So oh, what you've we, been through. We, we stayed through that and it, you know, the, it's been, it's been really, it was very hard. It's still hard. We, I just had a second benefit uh, here in town with, I worked with two different local nurseries and we had a benefit in December for local gardeners who had lost their homes or gardens. And um, we just, we reached out to people around the country and asked for any donations. And we created little care packages for these gardeners to just give them a little hope because Mm. For the most part, the town of Paradise was was destroyed. And because of the toxicity left in place, most people won't be back on their properties or in their gardens per se uh, until maybe the end of this year, Deborah. Wow. It's, it will be a long time um, clearing, cleaning, um, and getting it ready for people to live in place again. So that, that has been a, a very powerful, you know, and in many ways is a fantastic reminder of just how precarious life is, how ephemeral it is. It is 
a great lesson in compassion when you see crises happening around the world and you're not sure how to feel about that. This this gives you a taste of what it means to be displaced, what it means to be um, at risk. Right. And, um, you know, when when otherwise you, you might not have an understanding. So, um, yeah, yep. there'll be a lot of work. And just that that uh, ever-present um, force of nature and natural disasters is playing out right before your very eyes while you're interviewing people around the globe talking about nature yeah. and, and the positive, like what's so positive and, and, and enriching about it. But it, there is that that scary uh, yeah. dark side too. So yeah. I, I, I am happy to hear that there is community and that people are coming together to uh, support those who lost so much. And But I just know what a toll it must be taking. And I uh, thank you for just working through that and continuing your work uh, despite those distractions, which, you know, is just, I can't even, it's indescribable. I don't even, I, there's no way I can even understand it. So just wanted to acknowledge that. Thank you for thank you for sharing that, uh, Jennifer. You are so great. Can we just do this every week? <laughs> <laughs> you call anytime. Never. Okay. Well, I want to make sure people who are listening can. Um, I know I'll be. I guess find you if they haven't already. Find I'll be happy to share the links of uh, all your social places and your show, and um, maybe you can share a few photos of your garden with us so we can sure. see what you look like and what your space looks like and and pic picture uh where jennifer jewel is when you're not just listening to her in your earbuds so uh i'd love to do that too so thank you so much for joining me today and we originally were going to do this to talk about your um your habitat series but it, i wanted to go much broader than that so thank you for being so generous with your time Oh, well, it has been an honor to be on and to talk to you. And I always, I always love to hear your laugh and um, your, your great warmth. So <laughs> back at you. Okay. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for joining me on this Slow Flowers journey as I seek new and inspiring voices, people with passion, heart, commitment, and expertise to share with you. I hope today's episode gave you at least one inspiring insight or tip to apply to your floral enterprise. What you gain will be multiplied as you pay it forward and help someone else. You can find and follow Jennifer Jewell and subscribe to her program, Cultivating Place, at cultivatingplace.com or via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud apps. Our second sponsor spotlight today includes a thanks to Johnny's Selected Seeds, an employee-owned company that provides our industry the best flower, herb, and vegetable seeds supplied to farms large and small, and even backyard cutting gardens like mine. Check them out at johnnysseeds.com. Our 50 States of Slow Flowers series continues today with the state of Indiana and our featured guest, Amy Bosir of Molly and Myrtle, an Indianapolis urban flower farm and design studio filled with curated wedding supplies to help couples go green. 
Amy started out about eight years ago as a farmer's market vendor selling cut flowers surrounded by garden foliage, and now everything she grows supplies her weekly business. Establishing relationships with small and large business owners comes naturally to Amy, a former marketing director at the Indianapolis Chamber of Commerce. When she personally delivers weekly flowers, it's a highlight to catch up with her customers, including a 13-room boutique hotel, an all-organic restaurant, artisan icy pop shop, an international brand retail store, and a senior living facility. Molly and Myrtle's bread and blooms, so to speak, are weddings, in addition to workshops, special events, and philanthropy. Let's jump right in so you can meet her and hear more. Well, I'm so excited today to be talking about Indiana and my special guest, Amy Boser of Molly and Myrtle. Hi, Amy. Hi, Deborah. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, I'm thrilled that you asked me. Oh, my gosh. And I have a special place in my heart because my mother is an Indiana native. So I, I went there a lot as a kid. <laughs> Not kind of in the middle of the state like you, where you are, but up, up closer to Chicago. And so anyway, I'm excited to hear what's going on. You're doing so many fascinating things. And maybe you can start out, Amy, by telling us uh, where Molly and Myrtle is located and kind of a snapshot of your business. Sure. So we are in the heart of Indianapolis on the north side. And, uh, you know, Indianapolis is a really big city. But what's awesome is that in 10 minutes, once you leave the city center, uh, there are amazing things all around the city. And so uh, we were able to start an urban uh, flower farm and uh, studio up on the north side. And uh, literally started it with my love of antiques and my love of flowers at the farmer's market. And it has grown into a full design service, weekly deliveries, and primarily weddings. Wow. And when you say there's a lot outside within 10 minutes of, of the urban core, is it just that you can get a little bit more land pretty close to the city? Exactly. And the city has provided a lot of initiatives for uh, empty, vacant lots that are turning into community gardens, um, just wonderful opportunities that, that the city and the state have offered other farmers, including wow. me. Wow. Well, you said you started out about eight years ago uh, as a farmer's market vendor. Um what kind of land are you growing on? Like how much acreage do you actually have? Literally just about a third of an acre. Wow, that's and, amazing. Uh, we were fortunate when we moved in. There was a beautiful uh, infrastructure and basis of perennials and deciduous trees and just amazing, an amazing footprint that was here. And uh, we've just kind of grown from there. And then we've also uh, been able to take advantage of land around us that we're going to hopefully develop even more wow. flower growing opportunities. So, wow. Are you selling at the farmer's market anymore? So sadly, I, I really miss, we miss going to the market, but uh, everything we grow is utilized every single week of the season wow. by our customers. Wow. Well, I, I think it's probably a more profitable model uh, because you're a more mature grower. You know, I, eight years ago, that was a great way to jumpstart your business, but things change. Right. And it was, it was you know, having a public relations background, it was the perfect way to, to get my marketing plan going, just yeah. talking to people, and I still do that. So, yeah, I think that's wonderful. So, you, your path to flowers was 
it sounds like it was very personal in that your grandmother influenced you um, and your daughter, I guess. And that the, can you talk a little bit about their names and how that influenced your business? Oh, for sure. So uh, Molly and Myrtle. Molly is my 20-year-old sophomore in college who wants to work in it in the British Museum of Art in London or the British History Museum. Uh-huh. And so I, I get a little piece of her in the summer until she... <laughs> maybe leaves leaves the United States, which would make me very sad. But uh, really, we we grew up uh, every year planning the garden together, and Molly has grown to be just a, a, a crack boutonniere artist, along with everything else she helps me do. And um, so Myrtle was my grandmother, born in 1898. I didn't know her very long Mm. since she was born in 1898, Mm -hmm. but she um, sort of established a love of peonies in our family. And that's always kind of been our our family flower. And that's that's where Molly and Myrtle came from. And I I hide behind the M's. (laughs) Do people call you Molly or Myrtle, though? And you go, no, I'm Amy. All the time. And, and, you know, that's sort of a joke because I'm the youngest of 10 children. So my mother would call several names before she got to me anyway. <laughs> oh, that's classic. I love it. So, um, Amy, you uh, you mentioned working uh, in marketing. Can you talk a little bit about, I started to ask you about your family history, but what got you to this point where you left what I'm assuming was a corporate uh, in- existence to being uh, surrounded by all things flowers? Yeah, wearing uh, beautiful clothes and hobnobbing around the city of Indianapolis as the marketing director of the Chamber of Commerce <laughs> to uh, overalls and uh, leather tool belts. But, yeah, um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I feel fortunate to have had that background. Uh, we made a decision as a family that I was going to stay home once our children came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, but always in the back of my mind, I knew I'd wanted to start a small business, and it was important that whatever that business was, I would be giving back to the community. But also, I, it was important to me just to teach uh, my kids about entrepreneurship and all of my marketing uh, expertise and contacts in Indianapolis. And just the, I feel gifted that I'm able to form partnerships, and that's what may, has made me so successful. Uh, personal partnerships just with, you know, starting with other farmers and then wedding venues, uh, business contacts that I still had from being very well connected in the business community and just uh, looking for, always looking for opportunities that don't involve a large investment of, you know, financial but I have uh, found some amazing ways to market my business in the last six years that haven't cost me much, if anything. Oh, my gosh. Oh, well, give us a couple uh, examples. I mean, maybe we need to do a whole uh, whole focus on this in, in the future. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's like guerrilla marketing or? It, it's just, I've, I've, yeah. So partners, um, the Indiana Grown Initiative has been great in the last year or two in that they are a statewide organization that I've become certified with as an Indiana grower. And every month there's an opportunity, whether it be education or getting your products out in front of people. Most recently, what's super cool, and I haven't figured out how I'm going to do this yet, but the Indiana Grown Initiative is actually going to have a retail store at the Indianapolis International Airport. Wow. So, I mean, literally, I I could have a little flower stand, you know, when people are getting off the planes and they miss their family and they want to bring home some flowers. Oh, that is amazing. 
you know, events on our beautiful circle down city circle downtown that the monument where uh, 200 Indiana grown farmers from and and makers uh, from all parts of the state come and and we set up and just uh, again public relations. Um, I love philanthropy. I partner with Riley Hospital about four times a year. I donate um, approximately 400 bouquets or fun woodland type gifts to mm -hmm. their employees that give back to the hospital. And I do fundraising events. We do beers and blooms at our favorite local brewery where we uh, people come together and drink beer and we, and we put together flowers and then we make a sizable donation to different nonprofits around town in that hour, hour and 15 minute fun time. So, right. And then those people that you've, you've kind of connected with through flowers um, <clears throat> are the ones who probably think of you when there's a family uh, special occasion like a wedding or, um, <clears throat> you know, a bigger, bigger spend on flowers and they, they want to uh, in turn you know, support you, I would imagine. Yes, I'm very fortunate. They're, I kind of call them my cheerleaders. <laughs> I know. I love that. Well, um, you know, kind of haven't changed your job description from when you were at the Chamber of Commerce. You're just uh, connecting people in a slightly different way, but kind of very publicly and, and very inclusively. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> except for the dirty fingernail part. It's about the same. Yeah, yeah. You're not going to the Rotary Club in your heels anymore. I get that. <laughs> well, you also mentioned to, uh, or just at the beginning of this um, quick quick uh, focus on Indiana, that you have a love of antiques. And I know that that does factor into <clears throat> what your business model is for Molly and Myrtle. And I think it, uh, it would be really fun for people to hear about how you work that into your, either your list of services or, or, you know, menu that you offer to, uh, especially wedding and event clients? Yeah, I feel like it's another sustainable portion of the industry that a lot of other designers could easily incorporate. And I've just, um, I'm lucky that I've always had a good eye for, uh, antiques and mid-century items. Um, I have a, a set of four chairs. I just discovered, um, their provenance they're each worth $700 a piece. They were built in Sun Valley in the 1960s. And I was renting them out for $15 per <laughs> event. <laughs> so what are you yeah. going to do about that? <laughs> so the chairs are, are in my studio right now, and they're super fun. And, and, and you know, if they want to get used for a fashion or a magazine shoot where I'm doing some really fun uh, flower installations, I'll, I'll bring them over. But I have um, a collection probably two to 300 things that we use for weddings. And what it does is um, it gives people a chance to use something unique, uh, but also it's something that's recyclable. Instead of going to Hobby Lobby and getting a sign for your wedding that says ceremony this way or mm -hmm. you know something fun, uh, we use a lot of elements such as mirrors and windows that we redo signs uh, every single week. I have seven different people who do hand lettering for me on the different elements that we have in the studio. It's so and, much, that's uh, so much more personal than something that is a reproduction, um, shabby chic look that maybe was uh, poorly made or inexpensively made it's got, that will ultimately get dropped off at the Goodwill or even tossed after the ceremony. It's, you're using something that's like a substantial, like an old window. I love that. Yeah. And they're, you know, they're, they're not, 
they're not real country. I look for stuff with super clean lines yeah. and because, because, you know, um, it sort of started out at barn weddings where everything looked country, but now it's kind of stepped up a notch. And so, uh, that's, those are the kinds of things that we like to keep on hand, cool mid-century bar carts and, Wow. Where Just do you, super fun stuff. So you've got a third of an acre to grow on. Where are you storing all this stuff? <laughs> so because I've created these partnerships, I have a couple different wedding venues that actually keep my items basically that, that furnish their venues. Mm. And so I'm able to pull from those and, and store uh, at my partner's location. So Wow. That is so cool. I love it. You're yeah. all about, you're all about collaboration and connection and community. And um, I, I mean, I just think everyone aspires to that. And I, I'm wondering what, what does it take to, you know, kind of open yourself up to that? Because obviously, you have competition, and but somehow that doesn't seem to to be a distraction for you. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think anybody can do it. It's keeping your eyes and ears open. Uh, we're fortunate. Last year, we turned down more than fifty weddings because our calendar filled so quickly. Wow! And, and this year, it's it's pretty much the same problem. Uh, we don't really want to scale up because I don't want other people doing my work. Mm. Um, <clears throat> But I mean, I, I am very active in reading the, the business uh, publications here in Indianapolis and just talking to people and everyone wants to help each other. Uh, I don't believe when I first started, maybe it was, but I don't believe there's any sort of cutthroat competition in the wedding business. It's mm. amazing once you get going. Mm -hmm. Everyone's really, we're all in it together. Well, those 50 weddings you turned down, you probably referred out to others right. in the marketplace, right? Right, exactly. Yep. So so then is your goal to maybe do fewer, uh, more high price tag events or does it? do you like a balance or a mix? I really like a balance. Um, I feel like there's not a huge number of people at my level that are offering fair pricing mm. um, and individualized designs. Um, my long-term goals are to, to do something like write a book. I've got about six different ideas, uh, <laughs> some of which, we'll talk. some of which most of them are, are not, are uh, nonfiction. So I'm mm -hmm. uh, not necessarily any, you know, there's so much in the marketplace right now and so many wonderful people that are educating us on gardening and, flower farming. I don't think that, I don't think I'm going to jump into that group. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, but you're, you're, what you're alluding to is that, you know, everyone has their unique perspective and point of view and story. And that's really, um, the, no one can take, take that away from you. So your voice would be valued in the mark, you know, in the floral space if you decided to go that route. But I'm curious, I'll, uh, we'll have to talk offline about that and tell me what you're thinking. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. <clears throat> well, I you mentioned Indiana Grown, and I wanted to just ask you before we wrap up, what is the zeitgeist, what's the sentiment in the um, state of Indiana, or at least in your region, about supporting uh, Indiana Grown products or Indiana made products? It sounds like there's a consciousness about that. It's, it's phenomenal. Uh, I've participated in Yelp events where there have been 8,000 people come through a venue in one night to purchase, you know, Indiana uh, endorsed products for gifts during the holidays. Um, the the slow flower consciousness is much lower than the slow food mm -hmm. consciousness here. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something where I'm trying to figure out a way I can get out there and, and 
be a platform to to educate people about that. Um, after hearing Christina Stemble talk at our uh, conference last Slow Flower conference last yeah. summer, I've I've definitely been spouting a lot of those uh, statistics, and people are just dumbfounded when you tell them that uh, you know it's less than ten percent of the of the market is in American grown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The number um, it can it maybe in some in some places uh, up to twenty percent, but it's definitely in that um, low percentage that um, I think we're all trying to radically change consciousness and having a story, being a face in Indianapolis, being the woman who talks about where these flowers came from. I mean, you're doing it like one, one bouquet at a time. I love it. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's 57,000 farms in Indiana, almost 20 million acres. And, you know, we're obviously primarily a food, food and soybean state, but I would love to see, um, you know, more flower farms. I'd yeah. love to help to support that. Yeah, that's exciting. I can't wait to uh, come visit sometime. I, I keep saying I will because Syndicate Sales is based in Kokomo, which isn't that far away, right? Right, right. right. And uh, I've, I've got a family friend that's worked there pretty much his entire career. So he's another one of my cheerleaders. Well, it's so <laughs> interesting because they, they still have a product line called Hoosier Glass. And isn't Hoosier kind of an Indiana thing? I don't know what oh, it means. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, no, no one really knows what a Hoosier is. It's the, it's the mascot for Indiana. I just know my my husband had a Hoosier Daddy shirt on the beach in Clearwater this week. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, uh, we'll just claim it, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, uh, Amy, I really love catching up with you. We we didn't get enough time to talk at the Slow Flower Summit last year because we were. I was a little distracted, but I'm so glad that you're willing to talk about what you're doing into your business. You've shared some uh, fun photos and um, I'll put them in today's show notes and we'll have some links so people who are hearing this can find and follow what Amy's doing. Uh, you've, you've got some wonderful programs for your business that are just, you know, giving you a different way to differentiate as a farmer florist and I, I'm just enchanted by it. So thank you so much, Amy, for chatting with me today. Oh, thank you for letting me uh, represent Indiana. Yay! <laughs> take care. You take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye. much for joining me today and I'm so pleased to share the stories and voices of both Jennifer Jewell and Amy Beausir. They're both contributing exciting chapters to the Slow Flower story and I hope you find and follow them. The Slow Flower Summit is coming up soon on July 1st and 2nd in St. Paul, Minnesota. More than half of the registration slots have been grabbed so don't miss this opportunity to join with Slow Flower's thinkers and doers in person. One of our past year's speakers dubbed the summit a floral mind meld, and I love that concept. Come and be part of the incredible and uplifting experience. You can make your way to slowflowerssummit.com to learn all about the many opportunities to join us, from flower farm tours and dinner on a flower farm, to business and branding presentations, to interactive and inspiring design sessions, all created to serve you. Subscribe to Summit News and Updates at slowflowerssummit.com. 
Truly, we have a vital and vibrant community of flower farmers and floral designers who together define the Slow Flowers movement as our cause gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry. The momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. Our final sponsor thanks today goes to Longfield Gardens. Longfield Gardens provides home gardeners with high-quality flower bulbs and perennials. Their online store offers plants for every region and every season, from tulips and daffodils to dahlias, caladiums, and amaryllis. Visit them at longfield-gardens.com and check out today's show notes for details on the Spring Flower Photo Contest going on now through May 24th. Share a photo of what's blooming in your garden, post to Facebook or Instagram, and you might win a $50 gift card from Longfield Gardens. I'll have more details at uh, today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 444,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. Thank you all. I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brenlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. <laughs>